please take our Bibles this evening and turn to Acts chapter 7 again. <clears throat> Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> Acts chapter 7, and let's just begin reading from verse 37 this evening as we open this, this evening. Acts chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, This is that Moses, which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers to receive the lively oracles to give unto us. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice unto the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Remphan, uh, figures which ye made to worship them. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Let's just open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> the Lord and Father, we do indeed thank you, Lord, for this time where we can come around your word. And Lord, I pray that again this evening as we consider, uh, Lord, Acts chapter 7, as we seek to uh, finish off Stephen's address here, Lord, I pray that you would just give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. Lord, it be your words, it be your thoughts, Lord, and that you would speak to our hearts through your word, that you would teach us, and Lord, instruct us, and may we leave knowing that we've been in your presence. Lord, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified now in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning we began to look at Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. So if you weren't here this morning, um, sorry, but we're doing part two this evening. You know, Stephen had been accused of blaspheming God. He'd been accused of blaspheming Moses, the law, and the temple. And in response to that, Stephen had began to review the history of the nation of Israel. As we said this morning, it was more than just a history lesson, okay? The Sanhedrin knew these things. This was more than a history lesson. What Stephen was doing is Stephen was highlighting from Israel's history how they were, in fact, the ones who had sinned against Almighty God. They were, in fact, the ones who had blasphemed God. They were the ones who had blasphemed Moses, blasphemed the temple, blasphemed the law. And Stephen began by looking, first of all, as we saw this morning, at Israel's spiritual origins, showing how their father Abraham was met by God in a pagan lands, without a temple, without the law, without circumcision. God met Abraham in the earth of the Chaldees. Abraham was saved simply by grace through faith. But the Jews have forgotten that. The Jews had forgotten their spiritual origins. Stephen then moved on to highlight Israel's pattern of rejecting God's deliverers. And we saw Joseph and Moses as examples of this. 
How about at the first appearance, Israel rejected both those men. It was only when they came the second time that Israel accepted them and the deliverance they brought. And Stephen's point, of course, was that they now done the same thing again in rejecting the Messiah. And this evening now we see that Stephen points out three more ways that Israel has sinned against God. The first of these that we see this evening is Israel's rejection of the law. Israel's rejection of the law. This is what we read in verse 37 to 43. So we won't read it again. We'll just read each verse as we get to it. You know, one of the accusations that was laid against Stephen was that he had spoken against the law of Moses. That was one of the the accusations they made. Just turn back quickly to chapter 6, verse 13, to refresh our memories. It says, And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So they accused him of speaking against the law, blaspheming the law. You know, look at Israel's history revealed that the nation had repeatedly broken God's law, had repeatedly rejected God's law. And by doing so, they were the ones who blasphemed the law. They had blasphemed the law of God. The very thing that they were accusing Stephen of doing, they were, in fact, as a nation, guilty of doing themselves. And it was a repeated problem for Israel, wasn't it? This was not a once-off. This was a repeated problem for Israel. In verse 38, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen speaks of how God delivered the law unto Moses and their fathers in the wilderness. Look in verse 38, it says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. The lively oracles spoken of here, of course, is the law. Okay, so he's talking about this, this time when they met with the Lord at Mount Sinai and Moses and their fathers received the law from God. And this, of course, takes place not long after they've come out of bondage, after they've come out of Egypt. They come to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai and the Lord meets them there. Let's just turn to Exodus chapter 19 quickly. Exodus 19. we'll just read from verse 16 it says and it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people were that was in the camp trembled and moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with god and they stood at the nether part of the mount and and mount sinai was altogether on on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of the furnace. And the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. This is the, the period that um, Stephen is referring to here. When he says, at Mount Sinai, Moses and their fathers received the law. He's talking about this occasion where they all came to the foot of the mountain to meet with God, and God speaks with the people. And what does God tell them? Well, let's read just the start of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, in verse 1, it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, 
which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And we go on. We're reading the Ten Commandments, aren't we? This is what God spoke to the people from the mount. God gave them the, the law, the Ten Commandments. Now think about this for a minute. This would have been an incredible experience for the nation of Israel. They come out to the mount and they see thunder and lightning and smoke upon the mountain and then they hear the voice of Almighty God giving them the law, giving them the Ten Commandments. They hear God speaking with them. And the result of this is that the people are fearful. Just stay in Exodus 20 verse 19. It says, And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Now they hear the voice of God and they're scared, as naturally you would be on an occasion like this. They're fearful. And yet God has given them plainly his commandments for them all to hear. And in verse 22 and 23 here, God sums up what the result of this experience should have been. Verse 22 it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Now, the Lord basically sums it up for them, doesn't he? He says, you've heard my voice from heaven, therefore don't make any images. You see, they talked with God. He'd heard him speak to them. And so with this in mind, God reiterates the command not to make any idols, not to make any false gods of silver or gold. You know, their God was a real God. They'd just seen that, hadn't they? Their God was real. And no image, no likeness was to be set up and worshipped in his place. Even if it was a representation of him, it was still an idol. It was still sin. And you see, that's the event that Stephen is referring to here in Exodus chapter 7, verse 38. But immediately after Israel receives the law of God, after they've just heard God speak to them from heaven, what do they do? They turn their backs on God. They reject his law, they reject his appointed leader, and they make themselves a golden calf. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and we read from verse 39. It says, To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt, saying that unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. You know, Stephen here now is referring, of course, to Exodus 32. Now, we're not going to go there and read it. I'm sure we know the story well. After Moses has been now on the mount with God for 40 days, the people become impatient. Impatient that Moses is not going to come back. And so they pressure Aaron. They go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, make us gods. 
to go before us. And Aaron foolishly listens to the people. He takes their gold and he makes the golden calf, which the people then worship and make sacrifice to. In Exodus 32 and verse 4, we read that after Aaron made the golden calf, they said this, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. See, the point is, only some 40-odd days earlier, the people had stood before the mounts. They'd seen Almighty God upon the mount with thunders and lightnings and smoke. They'd heard the voice of God saying what? I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. God had just told them himself, I am God, don't worship anything else. And Israel rejects God's law some 40 days later and they build themselves an idol unto him. No sooner has God given his people the law and they are already rejecting the law. That's Stephen's point here. That's what he's trying to get across here to the Sanhedrin. That from the very beginning, they have been rejecting God's law. And then in verse 42 to 43, Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5. In verse 42, we read this. It says, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets, Amos. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Stephen quotes from Amos chapter 5 here, verse 25 to 27. And what Stephen is trying to get across here, he quotes this passage to reveal to the Jews what they had been doing all those years in the wilderness. You see, they had an outward form of worship to God, but in their hearts they had rejected God and his law and were worshiping false gods. That's the end of the verse there. It says, O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? You see, the question there demands a negative answer. The answer is, no, you haven't offered it to me for the 40 years of the wilderness. And you might say, well, yeah, they did. They offered sacrifices. Yes, they did, but not with their hearts. That's the point. There was periods of time in that 40 years where they turned back and they worshipped idols. They kept rejecting the Lord. They not offered those sacrifices with a right heart attitude. They kept the form of worship, but they frequently forsook God and his law and worshipped idols. You know, this, of course, became a pattern for Israel, didn't it? As you read through the Old Testament, this is the pattern. Israel rejecting God, rejecting his law, serving false gods. It's the pattern that Israel fell into. Even in the promised land, they chased after the pagan nation's gods. And because of this sin, God repeatedly disciplined his people. He repeatedly sent prophets to warn them and tell them to turn back. Prophets like Amos to tell them, hey, it's sin, turn back to God. 
until finally God judged them, carrying them off into Babylon. The end of verse 43 there, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Indeed, the nation of Israel was guilty of rejecting the law. Now, they, they accused Stephen of blaspheming the law of God, and yet they themselves had done it repeatedly. And indeed, were still doing it. The Sanhedrin was not obeying the law. They were obeying their own rules and regulations. They were rejecting God, even now, rejecting his law. Now, in case they missed the point, Stephen's very blunt in verse 53. Just drop down there. He says, Who have received the law by disposition of angels and have not kept it. You can't get any blunter than that, can you? He says, You haven't kept the law. Even those sitting before him, the Sanhedrin, they were guilty of this sin of rejecting God's holy law. Secondly, now we see that Israel's idolization of the temple. Israel's idolization of the temple. Look in verse 44. We read this. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus, which is Joshua, by the way, with Jesus into the possession of the the Gentiles, whom God drave out uh, before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me? Saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not mine hand made all these things? You know, another accusation that the witnesses had brought against Stephen was that he had blasphemed the temple. We saw that in verse 13. It says that he spoke against this holy place. um, Chapter 6, verse 13. They accused him of speaking against the holy place. And then in verse 14, they accused him of teaching that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. And once again, Stephen, using Israel's history, points out to them that they were in fact guilty of destroying the temple. Destroying what the temple stood for. Destroying what it was all about. Because what they'd done is they'd taken the temple and turned it into an idol. They had idolized the temple. You see, the temple to the Jews was more important than the truth. The temple was more important than obeying the Lord and his revealed word. The temple was the priority. The temple was exalted to a place where it was more important than the one who dwelt there. They exalted it, they idolized it. And so to them, to hear Stephen and the other believers teaching that God could be worshipped without a temple, was blasphemy. How dare Stephen teach that? How dare Stephen teach that we don't need a temple to worship God? How dare Stephen teach that Christ is greater than the temple? This is why they're saying he's he's accused of blasphemy against the temple here, because he's teaching that. He's teaching that Christ is greater, teaching that the temple is not needed to worship God. Because Christ, the Messiah, has come. You see, the problem was that they had forgotten the purpose of the temple. 
They'd forgotten what it was all about. They'd forgotten the purpose of the sacrifices that took place there. You see, their faith was in the place and the works, not in the God of the place and His work. Their faith was totally misplaced. Verse 44, Stephen reminds them how God first had given them the tabernacle in the wilderness. Verse 44, it says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as yet appointed, speaking under Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. You know, God had given Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness. And so Moses built the tabernacle and then God graciously dwelt among his people. God graciously put his presence there. He put his glory in the tabernacle. Just turn to Exodus chapter 40 with me. Just quickly, Exodus 40. And verse 34, Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now here we see Moses built the tabernacle, and God graciously puts his presence there. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. God graciously dwelt amongst his people. Even though God cannot be contained by anything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You can't contain God to one tent, but God put his unique presence there. God made his presence there amongst his people. He dwelt amongst them. You see, the point is the tabernacle was not the special thing, was it? The tabernacle was just a tent without the presence of God. The presence of God is what made the tabernacle in the wilderness special. If God's presence wasn't there, then it is just a tent. There's nothing special about it. Stephen then goes on in verse 45, reminding them how the tabernacle continued to be the dwelling place of God. Let's just go verse 45, it says, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. And so Stephen now continues on. He talks about how the tabernacle continued to be God's dwelling place, his presence amongst his people right through the wilderness, into the promised land, right up until David desired to build a temple, was told by God, no, but your son Solomon will build it instead. And so Solomon builds the first temple for God in the fourth year of his reign, 480 years after they leave Egypt. Okay, 480 years later, the first temple is built by King Solomon. The point is, for 480 years since Israel has left Egypt, they haven't had a temple, have they? They've had a tent, okay, a tabernacle. They haven't had a permanent dwelling place for the Lord amongst them. They haven't had a temple. But now Solomon, at the instruction of the Lord, builds the first temple there in Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, we read that God once again 
fills it with his glory. Let's just go there. First Kings 8. <clears throat> In verse 10 it says, And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So God once again graciously puts his presence amongst his people. This time in the temple, he fills the temple with his glory. But the point is the same, isn't it? The temple is just a building without the presence of the Lord. There's nothing special about the temple if God is not there. It's God's presence that made it a special place. You see, the problem for Israel was that over the years, the worship of God had degenerated into mere religious formality. They were just going through the motions. We read that in the prophets, don't we? Time and time again, this is the accusation. You're just going through the motions. You see, more faith was placed by Israel in the temple, the place of worship, than was in God, the one who dwelt there. Now, Jeremiah warned the people about their superstitious faith in the temple. He told them they'd turn the house of God into a den of thieves. Let's just go there and read it. Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. We'll start reading from verse 1. Jeremiah 7 verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I'll cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after, the, after, sorry, after gods to your hurts, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense to Baal, and walk, not up, uh, and walk after other gods whom you know not? And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and saying, where we are delivered to do all these abominations. In this is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I speak unto you. Rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave you, and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I'll cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not. Hear thee. It's a pretty powerful passage, isn't it? 
Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah highlights for them their faith in the temple. Their faith in the temple rather than in God. They'd idolized the temple. And they thought they could do as they pleased as long as they kept God happy by offering a few sacrifices at the temple. They trusted in the temple. Now the Lord says, go and look at Shiloh and what I did to Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tabernacle first was when they came across the Jordan River. It's where it was first situated until the temple. And they'd idolized Shiloh and then the Lord dealt with it. And now the Lord says, I'm going to deal with the temple as well because you're doing the same thing to the temple. See, in Jeremiah's day, they had done this. They'd come to trust in the temple. They made token worship to the Lord, but their hearts were not in it. See, the point is, God's not concerned with the place of worship, but rather the heart of worship. That's what Israel failed to understand. Worship that honors the Lord must come from the hearts. You know, even King Solomon, who built the temple, understood that God doesn't live in buildings. First Kings chapter 8. <clears throat> Just turn there. First Kings 8, verse 27. First Kings 8, verse 27, it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Solomon understood that the heavens can't contain the Lord, so how is his tiny little house going to contain God? Solomon understood that. But Israel failed to understand that. They thought God was contained to the temple, that God was the temple effectively. And this is the point that Stephen now makes plain as he goes on in verse 48. <clears throat> Acts chapter 7 again. Verse 48, it says, How be it, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things. Now Stephen tells them the Almighty doesn't dwell in temples. He doesn't dwell in places made with hands. God cannot be contained to a building. And the prophet that Stephen is referring to here is Isaiah. Just turn quickly to Isaiah 66. I know we're flipping around a lot tonight, but we just kind of need to. Isaiah 66. <clears throat> Isaiah 66, verse 1, okay, this is where he quoted it. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Now, Isaiah makes it plain, doesn't he? What's God looking for? A poor and contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart, as the psalmist says. That's what God is looking for, not a place of worship, not grand buildings. God is looking for a heart of worship. You see, the religious leaders in Stephen's day had failed to understand this truth. They effectively worshipped the temple. They had idolized it. They failed to remember that Abraham had met God without a temple. They failed to remember that all their patriarchs had worshipped God without a temple. 
without a tabernacle as well. See, the temple had no saving power. It was always by grace through faith. And true worship of God must be from the heart. It's not the place. It's the heart that matters. You see, the Jews' defense of their temple was simply illogical. And it was unscriptural. And with the coming of the Messiah, the temple had been done away with. As God now put his presence within the heart of every believer. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. You see, every believer now is the dwelling place of God. That is where God's presence is. There's no need for a temple. He dwells within our hearts. The temple and all the worship contained therein was meant to point the Jews where? To Christ. But they missed it. They missed the point. They missed their Messiah and they rejected him. Thirdly and lastly, now we see Israel's stubborn resistance of God and his truth. Israel's stubborn resistance of God and his truth. Verse 51, it says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And we come now to the climax of Stephen's speech. Stephen now makes a personal application that cuts to the heart of the hearers. It's this that really sets them off. This is why they rise up and stone him. As he makes an application now that cuts to their hearts. You see, just in case they'd missed the point all the way along, just in case they'd failed to understand what he was trying to get at, Stephen now is very blunt in his words to the Sanhedrin. In verse 51, he tells them bluntly that they are just like their fathers. They're stiff-necked, and uncircumcised apart. Verse 51, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. It says, just like your fathers resisted the Holy Ghost, just like your fathers resisted God and rejected God, you are doing the same thing. Now think about it, this would have taken a great deal of courage for Stephen to do. Remember where he is. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. And he basically points the finger at the Sanhedrin and he says, You are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of hearts, resisting God. He's taking a great deal of courage, boldness to say this. He points the finger at them and tells them that they are just as guilty as all their fathers before them. They resisted the work of the Spirit. They resisted God's work. And indeed, they were resisting the Spirit even now, weren't they? Even now, they're resisting the Spirit. That's why they rise up and kill Him, because they're ignoring the spirits. They're not listening even now as Stephen is speaking. He goes on in verse 52 to reiterate the stubbornness of Israel throughout the ages. Verse 52, we read, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which show before of the coming of the just one. You know, God had sent prophet after prophet unto Israel. And what did they do? They rejected them. 
They reacted by persecuting the men of God, ignoring them, casting them out. They stubbornly resisted the message that God had sent unto them. You know, this was the characteristic of the nation, to persecute the messenger of God. And more than that, they'd even slain those who prophesied of the coming of the Messiah. That's the second part of verse 52 there where it says, And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. They'd even gone further than persecuting. They'd killed those who prophesied of Christ. They'd put them to death. You know, Christ made the same declaration in Matthew 23, verse 21. He says, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. You see, Israel had slain prophets like Isaiah. And Zechariah, they put these ones to death. Why? Because they declared the coming of the Lord. And they didn't like it, so they killed them. You know, this added to the offense of their fathers. You know, the offense of the Sanhedrin was far worse because they killed the Messiah, the just one. The end of verse 52 there. And they have slain them which show before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Christ the Messiah had come, but like their fathers before them, they stubbornly refused to listen to God's deliverer, God's messenger. They refused to receive the, tr- the truth, refused to bow the knee, and instead they killed him. They crucified the Messiah. You know, they were so entrenched in their traditions, so entrenched in keeping the law, so entrenched in worshipping at the temple, that they could not recognize God's servant, God's truth, when it came. The man's dead traditions had replaced God's living truth, and so they missed their Messiah. You know, both this morning and again this evening, we've considered Stephen's response to the Sanhedrin. You know, in his response, Stephen has made it very clear that the Sanhedrin and indeed the nation of Israel is guilty before Almighty God. Of the very things they accused him of, they themselves were guilty. You know, it's following this bold response, the Sanhedrin then rises up and stones Stephen to death. And Stephen becomes the very first martyr for the faith. You know, as we said this morning, Stephen was ready to give an answer, wasn't he? He was ready to give an answer. When these men asked him concerning his faith, when these men questioned him, he was ready to give an answer through the power of the Holy Spirit and he responds with great boldness, great wisdom to those who stood against the truth. And beloved, we need to be like Stephen. We need to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is within us. We need to be ready. Now, it's not an answer of our own strength, is it? It's not an answer according to our own wisdom. But rather, we need to be able to give an answer in the power of the spirits according to the Word of God. You know, and that means, as we said this morning, being in the Word of God, knowing God's Word walking in a close relationship with Him so that then we may stand and faithfully, boldly declare the truth. 
You know, we need to be men of God who take the word of God and stand against those who oppose God using the word. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for Stephen and his great testimony of faith, Lord, his great boldness and wisdom as he stood before the Sanhedrin. And Lord, we are ever aware that, Lord, he could only do that through the power of the Spirit. But Lord, it's because he was a man controlled by the Spirit, a man who was in your word, had a relationship with you, that, Lord, you could take him, you could use him and give him such wisdom and boldness to stand. And Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, Lord, to likewise be ready always to give an answer. But Lord, not an answer in our own strength, an answer in the power of the Spirit. And Lord, so help us to be in your word daily, help us to walk in a right relationship with you each daily. And may you strengthen us to stand boldly for you, we pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.